You're listening to Pastor Jared Ruddy of City Lights Church. Acts chapter 2, if you can turn with me to verse 17, the scripture says this. Verse 16 will say this. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, and I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I'll pour out my spirit, they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The book of Acts is really the start of the Christian church. God, from the beginning of time, has always had a people. We see in the 39 books of the Old Testament God's promises and his covenant people that he has always had a people. But we see that the promises of what God promised in the Old Testament is realized in the New Testament church. And the Apostle Peter stands up at the day of Pentecost, the day when God pours out his Holy Spirit on his church, and declares the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2, now in Acts chapter 2. But what he says is this, In the last days I'll pour out my Spirit On all flesh. I want to talk just for a few moments this morning about a spirit led community, what it means to be a spirit led people in a spirit led community. The scripture says, In the last days it shall be that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Now, as Americans, uh, we, we hear a scripture like this and it doesn't really jump off the page. There's nothing that appears very dynamic about it. It just thinks, okay, well, there's an Old Testament prophecy. He's pouring out his spirit on all flesh, on men and women, on male servants, on female servants. Just, it's just kind of this good prophecy. Okay, God's going to do something nice. Now, let me remind you that in our country, up until 1920, women did not have the right to vote. It's interesting that we even use the phrase, you have the right to vote. Because as Americans, we understand that our Constitution gives us, as citizens, rights. So in the idea of a scripture saying that God's going to pour out the Spirit on all flesh, that's something that we hear, it doesn't really come off very striking to us. There's nothing really remarkable about it because we kind of almost feel an entitlement towards God offering everyone something. But the context in which this is written is something far more dramatic than our modern minds would let us think through. In this passage, the prophecy that's coming forth is into such a strict class, uh, a, such a, a strict class of, uh, of, of gender, of, of race, of economic, of, of, of social standing, that this prophecy is dramatic. God is saying, in the last days, I'll pour out my spirit on everyone, on all flesh. I will no longer operate within the caste system of male or female, of wealthy or poor. I'll pour out my spirit on everyone. Now, I, I don't think I can even ex- explain how dramatic this is because to us, we just kind of 
live in it, expect it. And our country with women's rights has come a, a, a long way. There's still, I believe, ground that needs to be made in that, uh, in, in, in that department. However, it has come such a, a far way for, for us to think that anyone would be treated differently in our country instantly causes a reaction. Instantly, like, okay, well, no, we're all equal. Well, yes, we are. But in the context in which this is written, this prophecy comes forth as God shattering the caste system of that day that would say, you are defined by your life circumstances, things that are out of your control, you are defined by them. You are born into something and someone says, this is your identity. Your identity is what? You're a woman. Today, like I said, our country's made such great leaps that although, again, if, uh, if I'm speaking to any feminist this morning, I'm sure there is much ground that needs to be taken. But as a whole today, we have laws that protect equal rights. We have laws that protect equal employment rights. But at this time, this is something so dramatic. If you were a woman in that day, you were far from on an equal level. Again, even in our own country, 1920, before you could vote, trying to show you how dramatic this is. If you were a servant in that day, a slave in that day, think about that. There's no equal rights as slaves. There's no slave union that gets together and votes on a slave president. You are stuck where you are at in life. This is your identity. This is who you are. You are a slave today. You will be a slave tomorrow. You will never be anything more than that. But what God says is that I am now going to interact with people. I'm going to break through all of the human obstacles, all of the boundaries and self-definitions of a culture, and I'm going to do something beyond your expectations of yourself or anyone around you. Now, this has radical implications for us, although today we might look at it and go, oh, that's not that exciting. He's going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. No, 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 it's it's radical for this reason. God is still saying, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And you'll prophesy. What does it mean to prophesy? Of course, in this context, it could mean about speaking forth about the future. But I think the greater implication is this, that you will speak on behalf of God to society. You will speak on behalf of God to society. That God says, in the last days, I'll pour my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. God is saying, I will raise up a people. I've always had a people. But I will raise up the fulfillment of those people that are not defined by any social or cultural boundaries. But they are defined by the markings of my spirit. Now, what does that mean? That means because Christ lives in you, you can do more and accomplish more for God's kingdom than anyone can possibly imagine. The Apostle Paul says it like this, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than you can ask, think, or imagine according to the power that is at work within you. This means that God in you is greater than you can comprehend. God in you is greater than comprehend. What I think is amazing about this text is not only does he say, I'll pour out my spirit, but he says this, I'm going to pour it out on flesh. I love that. You know, I'm not sure if you struggle with this, but I feel like as people, 
we view things that are spiritual as if they're separate from things that are physical. We have a, it's really a Greek concept, but we have the physical world and then the spiritual world. We have the physical world, everything we touch and taste and see and smell, any of our five senses are physical, and then we have a spiritual world which we sometimes, not as Christians, but some people would refer to like a sixth sense or something along those lines. And we have a tendency to divide these two. Here's physical world, here's spiritual world. And what we do by default is say flesh and physical is bad or neutral at best, and spiritual is good and holy, but it's something you can't touch. But God says this, I'll pour out my spirit on flesh. It doesn't say I'm going to pour it out on people that escape their humanity. I'm going to pour it out in the midst of their humanity. I feel like as people, I'll just share kind of a personal confession here. I didn't kill anyone, don't worry. Personal confession, get, get nervous. A personal confession, though, is that I feel that one of the biggest obstacles to the church of Jesus Christ is that our concern for what we do not have or do not possess, there's something in our flesh that constantly feels like it disqualifies us. If I could just do a little bit more or not do so much of this, if I could get this under control, then God would perhaps maybe someday use me. But the scripture says, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. This means that God doesn't view this world as physical and spiritual. He views it as one world. One world. There's not holy, sacred, separate, apart from God, and then God has this world that he's created that he's uninterested in, unaffiliated with, that's cut off. No. It's one world. One world. It's a universe. It's one thing. It's together. It's not separate. We have the tendency, though, to divide these things. What I want to show you is this. That when the Holy Spirit's poured out, it looks very practical. It doesn't look um, as just something that we have to chase as if, I don't know, we come in, have an experience, and leave. But a Spirit-led community looks like it has flesh on it. Book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 42. What happens after this spirit-led community is formed? You don't see mystical robots walking around the streets of Jerusalem. You don't see them walking around with their eyes glazed over a zombie apocalypse of the Holy Spirit I think sometimes we expect that. We almost want God to just come over, take over our minds, our lives, our eyes, and just, I, I don't want that. That scares me, that idea. But it's almost our expectation is that God's moving would be taking over us. But that's not what it looks like. What it looks like is in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says this. And they, who's they? The scripture tells us that they are the people that just heard a message that Peter preached spontaneously. And these 3,000 people respond to this message. And now, who are they? This is they, the church. Devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. 
And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now let me say something very, very, very clearly. This is not something that we can fabricate. This is not something that we can pull apart. Okay, now here is six key elements to church life. We need to be devoted to teaching. We need to be devoted to fellowship. Um, We need to be devoted to breaking bread, garlic bread, communion bread. We need to be devoted to these things. And if we can do these things, then God will be in the midst. Um, That's like, um, that that just sounds like a bad first date to me. Uh, If I do all of these things, she'll love me, right? This is not a formula. This is not telling us uh, if we do these things, then the Holy Spirit will be in our midst. But what this is saying is that a Spirit-filled life takes shape and expression in this way. A Spirit-filled life is not devoted to yourself, but is devoted to a community of people. It's devoted to a purpose bigger than yourself. It's devoted to a, a, a church, a family. It's devoted to a community. That's radical. That doesn't fit into an American mindset, which is simply built on independence. But a spirit-filled life is expressed through a devotion to teaching, to the scripture. This is not something that can be forced. This is not, if I read my Bible every day, then God will come down and, and be happy. No, this is a spirit-filled expression. A spirit-filled church sees signs and wonders take place. This isn't something that we force or fabricate. This is something that where God is, signs and wonders follow. It just does. Maybe if we want to tame that a little bit, we'll call it answered prayers. I don't really want to tame it, though, because I think it's signs and wonders. Those who believe had everything in common. This is not socialism. This is not socialism. This is spirit-filled generosity. These are signs of the Spirit. These are sign markers in our lives that if we don't see these things born, then the question we have to see is, has the Spirit been poured out on us? Have we experienced what it means to be set free and experience His Spirit? If we have... It changes. It creates within us a new community, a new ethos, a new way of life. The scripture goes on to say this, that they had all things in common, selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, let me just say that. That's not something that we naturally do as people, particularly, I think, in American society. We're generous people. We'll give to the Red Cross and other different organizations. But the idea here is not just being generous towards random organizations, but that we see need and that God motivates us. This is not a church-organized, top-down thing. This is people, believers, seeing needs and saying, I can be the answer to that. A spirit-filled church 
He goes on and says this, attending the, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Kind of stopping at that line for just a second. Breaking bread in their homes. How many people know you don't let somebody in your house that you don't like? Well, I don't. Everyone's like, I haven't been invited. It's because we have a small house. Don't take offense, all right? <laughs> it's not that we don't like you. We have an incredibly small house, all right? It's just, it's just the truth of it. It gets uncomfortable. We have Aaron, myself, one guinea pig. You throw one other person in there, and it feels like a party, okay? We tried to do a home group in our house like two years ago. We had 20 people in our house, and it, I felt like we were breaking fire code. It was bad, all right? So don't take offense. You haven't been invited. What I'm saying is this. You don't let people in your home that you wouldn't let in your heart. Uh, you, you just don't. And if you do let somebody in your home, uh, it's typically guarded. You know, you'll let them come into the, the foyer or whatever. If you have a foyer, we just kind of have a long shoe hallway. Uh, <laughs> if you've been in our house. Then you walk up and then you have a living room. And now, I don't know about you, but when you first get to know somebody, I feel like the most vulnerable place in a house is the bedroom, secondarily the kitchen. Have you ever noticed that when you're over someone's house? It's almost like the kitchen is like, no, I got it. You can stay out. I got it. I don't understand what that dynamic is. But what you see here is this. That this spirit-filled community, this spirit-led community, is inviting people in their home and breaking bread with them. Now, um, I've read commentaries on this, and we may be tempted to make this spiritual and talk about they're all getting together having communion with one another all the time. But that's probably not what this is. Most scholars believe that this is not that they're getting together and breaking bread in communion, but this is just them getting together and spending time with one another. Community. Breaking bread as in a meal. In an American church, an American mindset, church is something that we go to and we leave. Pop in, we pop out. It's like a time card. As long as I can check in, check out. But a spirit-filled life brings births within us a sense of and a desire for community, a desire to share life with other people. This is, again, not just a top-down program. This is something that goes beyond that. Continuing. Ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. As we think about what it means to be a spirit-led church, What does this take shape as? This is not things that we can just fabricate on our own. I got an idea. If we can do, you know, church suppers after this, this, this. If we could do that, this, this, then we'll have this dynamic church. No, this is not something that we do in hopes that God comes down. This is the natural response to people who have received the free gift of God in Christ. I want to share this with you this morning. I started off by saying how radical this text really is. Because when we look at this, we, I feel so, like it doesn't jump off the page. It just kind of sits there. But here, God is saying, I'm breaking down every natural human barrier of limitation. I will not interact with you on the basis of your finances, on the basis of your social class, on the basis of your gender or race. I will base my relationship with you on something different. 
What is that? God bases his relationship with us on the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. God relates to us not on our works, not on our race, not on our social class or social standing, but literally only reacts to us on the basis of his perfect sacrifice in Jesus Christ. Let me say this. No one in the world will relate to you like that other than God. Everyone will relate to you on the basis of your race, on the basis of your gender, on the basis of your social standing, of your class. Have you ever felt out of place? Have you ever felt out of place? Okay, I'm feeling a little out of place right now, looking for a response to feeling out of place. I feel out of place, okay? Have you ever felt out of place when you, uh, you go into somebody? I, I, I like watching body language. It's something I study. Body language is interesting because uh, our bodies actually tell uh, messages that we don't even realize we're communicating. And one of those things is that when somebody shakes your hand, when they put their hand above you, on your shoulder, that can actually be a sign that they feel more dominant than you. And I'll do that subconsciously, and I feel like an idiot because I'm thinking, I can't believe I did that because I never want to portray that. But somebody shakes your hand. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that, though, where uh, you'll meet somebody, and instantly you can feel that they size you up. Maybe you're at a business meeting or something like that, and they find out where you're at. And where you're at is based on two things. Things that you can control and things that you cannot control. Some things you can control because this is my hard work. I've, I've earned this. Look at this title, this professional position that I've gained. Other things are out of your control. Perhaps it's a family that you've been born into. Maybe when you're around your other family members that you're not the, the, whatever, the, the, the strong side of the family. This, I was talking with my dad about this. My dad's mother uh, was late in life when she got married, and I was asking my, I was just speaking with my dad's sister about this as well. She was in her 40s when she got uh, married, had my dad in her 40s as well, so she was the original Halle Berry, I think, in that terms for the late pregnancy. But uh, she was in her 40s when she had had, um, my dad, and her family did not want her to marry my grandfather. She came from a lot of wealth, a lot of money. She has a, you know, kind of a prestigious last name that was in this area that people knew about her. And my dad's dad uh, was illiterate. He dropped out of school, I believe, at seventh grade. He was uh, born and raised at the YMCA. Talk about a scary place to be born and live and the whole thing, all right? So he didn't really have a lot going for him. And my Aunt Anne said to me just the other day, she said, Jared, I, the only thing I can conclude, the only reason they got married is that he was a, a handsome guy. You can tell where I get it. And... Uh, and that it was late in life and she wanted to have children and he was a nice man that would take care of her. That's the only reason I could figure it out. And my dad said that as he grew up, because on one side he had this name that was prestigious on his mother's side, but on his father's side his dad was constantly, they were poor growing up, they had no real things. Because of that there was always this system, this kind of uh, caste system that Although it was far from India or anything like that, it was this caste system that you were a ruddy. You were a ruddy. And that means you're not enough. Oh, it's amazing to me because my last name today, I never even knew that. I never even thought about that. That my dad grew up in that paradox of feeling something inside of him. Now, I recognize this. Today, so many of us, 
come into obstacles and things where we feel are defining who we are. What defines you? Maybe it's a a criminal record that you have. Maybe it's a criminal record. Maybe it's something you've done that you feel, I'll never be able to overcome this. Maybe it's a really terribly bad day. Literally, watch this. Maybe it is a single day in your history that you did something really wrong on one day and you can't outrun that. As fast as you try, you can't outrun that. It's because one single day has now become your defining. This is who you are. Maybe it's the family that you've been born into. Maybe it's something that somebody did to you when you were a child, a teenager, or even an adult that was out of your control. And now everywhere you go, you feel that you kind of wear a badge that defines that for everyone else around you, and perhaps that's how you define yourself. Paul the Apostle says this, though. We will no longer regard anyone according to the flesh. Now, that's weird. God says, I'll pour my spirit out on all flesh. And he says, I'm not going to regard, I'm not going to know anybody according to the flesh anymore. What does he mean by that? That's not, that's not mystical robot. He's not taught, you know, walking in, I only see people and refer to them, you know, in some hyper-spiritual thing. No, he's saying this. Paul the Apostle, the, really, the chief <laughs> apostle of the Christian faith, the guy that is at the forefront of it, we're tempted as Christians to look at him and think that he came into life with everything together. That everything was set up for him and perfect. Well, what we find out in the book of Philippians is that his life was far from perfect, but he was a persecutor of the church. That he condoned murders. We see that this man, everything about him disqualified him. And that's the man that says this. I'm not going to judge anybody according to the flesh. Let me say this. Jesus is the only person that is willing to relate to you on something based other than your performance. God does not look at you based on your good week or your bad week, on your family, on your gender, on your race, on your social standing, on your income level, of how high of a rank you are at work. He doesn't relate to us on that. He says this, in the last days, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy side by side. Your male servants and your female servants are going to be right by the sons and right by the daughters. This is what only the gospel of Jesus Christ can do. Regardless of your standing, your history, your past, God has a new identity for you. This new identity is something that you can't self-define or limit. I'm going to say something that you have the liberty to completely disbelieve. You have the liberty to completely disbelieve it, but if you know me, I've never said anything like this from the pulpit before. I had an experience that changed my life a few years ago. I was in the middle of a dream. Literally, I was in the middle of a dream sleeping. Last night, I had a dream I wish I wouldn't have had. You ever had a dream that you wake up and you're so glad it's over? Anybody have a dream like that? Last night I had a dream I broke my tooth and I woke up and I've reached, I was like, thank God it's there. Okay. So I was, I was like, it was just so awful. I was like, thank God that dream ended. Have you ever had a dream where you wish you didn't wake up? Okay. I've never said anything like this from the pulpit, but I'm telling you this because I really do believe that this was a dream that God gave me. 
In this dream, I find myself on the top of this mountain. I'm just standing there. And I look up to the stars, and I, it was something about it. It was more than a dream. I could feel that. And in this dream, I look up, and two stars shoot down like comets before me and hit right in front of me. And right before me then stands like two, I'm guessing angels, I can't see their faces, that are standing there overtaking me with the presence of what they are and look at me and say, there's more in you than you know. And I woke up shaking, covered in chills, and wish I could fall back asleep and do that again. I realized this. That was a dramatic dream, an experience that I had that's not something I can force. I didn't eat pizza, and I didn't have NyQuil that night. Okay, there was nothing about that. Perhaps I have an excited imagination, but I don't believe it was that. I believe that God was trying to tell me something, that there's more in me than I know. But I believe today, more than an experience, more than a dream, God wants to tell you something. That it's time to live a spirit-filled life. A life that is not defined by anything or anyone other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Take off the limitations. Break them off of your life. Or should I say, realize that they're already broken. This is not something that you have to achieve God loves you more than I can express. His gospel is not built on the basis of what you do or where you come from. It is a free gift. Let me explain something about that, though. A gift is either received or rejected. There's no middle ground. It's not like the UPS thing. You know, we show up and it's, uh, if it's under X amount of dollars, you don't have to sign, we just leave it there, okay? That's not how the gospel works. It's not just sitting on your porch. It's either received and embraced or rejected and pushed away. And I'm saying this to you today. What a beautiful Savior. The end of the prophecy, verse 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's it. All we do to receive right standing with God, fellowship, communion, and relationship with Him is simply call on His name this morning. You're already calling on somebody's name. You already are. I I, I don't know. I just maybe have to bring that to your awareness. You're already calling on somebody's name to be your Savior this morning. That name is already something. Either the amount of money you have, the amount of relationships you have, the amount of security you have, the amount of peace you have, the amount of popularity you have, the position at work you have. Something is already, you feel like that is your Savior that you're secure to. But in Christ... We get to have something that will never let us down. Have you ever uh, seen, the other day, Aaron and I, we have only local channels on television. It was like an ABC special on plastic surgery. And here's these people, they're famous movie stars. I'm not opposed to plastic surgery if you want to get that. It is, that's your own thing. I should just check your motives in it. And make sure you exchange your stuff. Apparently you got to get that traded in and out, I guess. I'm not sure what that's about. But you see these people who at one time 
born natural beauty. But it's faded to the point now where they look like a fish. Right? And the level of self-deception that's over their minds is just unbelievable. Because you look at this person, they're, they're 75, 80 years old, and their cheeks look like they got more life in them than I do. That's great. Like, they've never are, like, if they're, imagine, I'm sorry, I just thought of something funny. I'm cracking myself up here first. Imagine getting in a fight with somebody like that. I am so angry with you. I can't, you are, I cannot stand you right now. Ah. It's like, you're smiling at me and yelling at me. I didn't know that was humanly possible until now. But I, I joke about it for this reason. You know, beauty, natural beauty, and I'm not talking about, please, take care of yourself and, and all that. That's, that's a, a good thing. But it's so, that one's so obvious when you see somebody that's you know, way old in life and they just can't let go of it. That self-savior is so obvious because we can all look at it and say, she's angry and she's smiling simultaneously. And they're like, we can see that. But we can't see all the other self-saviors. We can't see the self-savior of family status. Or that we feel our identity is built on something because we're from this family and not that family. Or we feel like I'm from this family and I'll never be something because I'm not from that family. We'll never, we'll never be able to see that. From a pulpit, I can't see it. Your friends may not even be able to see it. Perhaps your spouse may not even be able to see that. But I want to say this to you this morning. There is a Savior who is so good and a grace that is so free It is something that does not have to be worked for or earned. And I promise you as a church that if we'll respond to verse 21, all that call upon the name of the Lord, all, not some, everyone calls upon him. I promise you, verse 42 through verse 47, all of that will come. But we have to have a spirit-filled church because we've received a free gift of grace. Can you stand with me this morning? Church, I love you so much. I, I watched us take communion today, and all I can do is literally just tear. I, I cry when I watch people take communion because part of me just is so thrilled to celebrate the Lord's Supper with other people and to know the, the other half of it, though, is I'm crying because I'm thinking, do we realize what we're taking and what's taking us? Um, I read the scripture and I see this life in Christ, this abundant life. And I see uh, so many people, Christians, that seemingly never experience the abundant life they possess. And I don't feel like they don't have something. I feel like they just don't realize what you already have. You know, 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul the Apostle says this, Do you not realize that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? That's amazing. Do you not realize? That means it's possible to not. It's possible to have more in you than you know. It's possible to have something in you that's greater than you know. Colossians would say it like this, that Christ in you, the mystery of the ages, the hope of glory is in you. What would it look like if as individuals we 
just allowed the Holy Spirit to say, Jesus, teach me what this grace and what this salvation looks like. I feel like we need to change our perspective a little bit. Sometimes, like the song that we're going to close with here in just a moment, it's, it's called Closer. It's a brilliant song. But we have to be careful that we don't sing that song in terms of proximity. As if God is distant and we're saying, pull me closer. As if we're trying to get closer to him in proximity. There's a difference. You can be, and maybe you've experienced this in a friendship or a relationship, you can be sitting beside somebody and be incredibly distant. It's not a proximity thing. But when this song says, pull me a little closer, take me a little deeper, we have to be careful that we're not thinking of it in terms of proximity because if we are not careful, Christianity becomes the proverbial carrot that can never be caught by the horse. Have you ever felt like that with Christianity? It's just a little bit too far. I'm maturing. I'm climbing up the holy mountain of God. And then sooner or later, we find out it's slippery. (laughs) And we slip back, we hit the ground, and we go, all right, got to start again. Start my climb. Start my climb. Next thing you know, one week, one month, two years, three years, seven years, an hour. We slip again. We're back at the bottom. I'm going to tell you that's not what the gospel is. It's not a slippery slope. And it's not you chasing a carrot that can never be caught. I was talking with my older brother about this yesterday, and he said, Jared, I grew up in a Pentecostal church, and everything was about going to the next level. He said, now I'm a Presbyterian, everything's about going deeper. He says, I'm tired of climbing, and I'm tired of digging. (laughs) That was funny. When I was a Pentecostal, it was always about going to the next level. Then I became a Presbyterian, and it's like, are you going deep enough? Are you deep enough? Now, how do you know? And Justin said, I'm tired of this. One minute it's the next level, next minute I'm digging deeper. I don't think that's what it is. He said, Jared, maybe, just maybe, this whole thing about Christianity is not us about going higher or digging deeper. Maybe it's about exploring what God has already given us in Christ. He said, I feel the picture that comes to my mind is like a scuba diver. It's baptized in this ocean of grace and the kindness of God who spends their life exhausting their effort and energy on the goodness of God. What if we looked at that? What if we thought about the gospel and recognize that you are so free, you are so forgiven, that it's not about going to the next level and it's not about digging deeper. It's about all I could see this morning is, Lord, I've been baptized in your spirit. We've been baptized into one body, one spirit. You are in him. Can we arise as a church to live that out? Worship team, if you'd come this morning as we close with this song. My heart aches for you because, you know, it's weird, but if you have... What I believe, there's nothing inconsistent about what I'm saying with the scripture. If you have two angels show up in a dream and tell you you have more in you than you know, that does something a little weird to you.
Now you're wondering, that's why he's been so weird all this time. That's why Jared's always a little bit different. When something like that happens, it just makes you feel like, man, maybe there is a little bit something weird about this whole thing, God living in us. As we sing, pull me a little closer, take me a little deeper this morning, I want you to realize, again, we're not praying for the proximity of God. He's not distant. He's not out beyond us in the heavens. He's right here. If you're a Christian this morning, if you're a believer, he dwells in you, resides in you. And he desires that you would be his prophesier to everyone around you. If you're not a Christian this morning, if you've come to City Lights for some time, if you're wrestling with this, or let me say this, maybe you made a decision for Jesus when you were years ago and you haven't done nothing with it, you haven't followed with it, this morning is a wonderful time to call upon the name of Jesus and say, I'm calling on you, Lord, save me. I want you to be my identity. This is a time for that. If you need prayer for anything this morning as we sing this song and close in just a few moments, we'll encourage you to come forward. If you need prayer for healing, we'd invite you forward this morning. If you need to say, Jesus, I need to make you my Savior. I've made my family my Savior. I've made everyone else my Savior. Today, please come forward. We want to pray with you and see God do that. Will you sing this song with us this morning? And I pray that you realize that we're not being pulled closer in proximity. We're being pulled closer in relationship and understanding of the beautiful work of Christ. Let's sing this together this morning.